Because the church councils omitted apocryphal books like Enoch from the canon of Scripture we now know as the Holy Bible, some Christians don't completely understand the critical role that these texts played in human history. But this is not the case for the ancients who read and studied these books diligently, including, by the way, Peter and Jude, whose New Testament letters directly quote from Enoch. As a result, did God's people understand the person and purposes of Jesus Christ in a way that we don't comprehend today? Is the Son of Man from Enoch the same Son of Man from the Gospels? And if so, what do the apocryphal texts say regarding this Messiah? Find out right here, right now, on Skywatch TV. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Skywatch TV. I'm Joe Artis Horn. Today, once again, we have a completely loaded panel of some of the greatest intellects that I know personally. I'm going to introduce them to you right now. He's a multi-time critically acclaimed best-selling author and CEO of Skywatch Television, Dr. Thomas Horn. She's a legend and pioneer of podcast radio, Christian television personality, and best-selling author of the Red Wing Saga, Sharon Gilbert. His broadcasting career has spanned for more than 40 years. He's the best-selling author of the groundbreaking books, Last Clash of the Titans, The Great Inception, and The Second Coming of Saturn, Mr. Derek Gilbert. She is a credentialed, ordained reverend with a degree in Bible and theology, a powerful voice in Christian television, Donna Howell. She's the host of the popular Christian television program for women, The Simply His Coffee Shop. Please welcome my beautiful wife, Catherine Horn. If you missed last week's program, I think it was fire. You must go back. We were talking about this giant, as I attempt to lift it, <laughs> massive, here we go, I'm getting my exercise in for the day, Defender Family Bible, limited edition, King James Version with expanded Apocrypha. It's a program you simply must go back and check out. For reference, this is my hand, if you can see how giant that spine is. This thing weighs, I'm going to guess, seven pounds? Is that... Is wow. that accurate? It's, Probably it's about eight. Maybe seven or eight pounds. Yeah, she, she's the one that works with our UPS app. She would know. <laughs> yeah. But ladies and gentlemen, if you missed last week, you got to go back. It was basically a clinic on all of the uh, extra biblical books that were not included in the original text of what we know as canon scripture, but books like Jasher, Jubilee, Enoch. Mm -hmm. And of course, people have talked for decades and decades and decades about scripture why these were uh, very important mm -hmm. to some of the, the ancients that considered them not necessarily equal with the Bible, but the historical accounts of what was happening culturally, as Donna explained last week, that had heavy influence over some of the authors in what became mm -hmm. Scripture, and certainly their record of the times that they were living in, of course, when they were writing. So it's, it's this very fascinating delve into why a book like this has such tremendous value. And if you missed last week, of course, my father, Dr. Thomas Horn, explained that he lost his original book of Enoch in a house fire, and he went to reach for it one day and realized, wait a minute, my book of Enoch is gone, <laughs> along with the rest of my library, and if that book is important to me, 
it is very likely important to other scholars, researchers, and people curious for the historical account. I want to get right back into this today because we have a special offer that is just mind-boggling. And I'll tell you about it in just a minute, but it amounts to $1,400 in various ebooks, PDFs, and of course, this book here, which would be, you know, if you went to a Bible bookstore, which would likely be sitting on the shelf for at least $200 mm-hmm. by itself. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, the context of the program, Donna Howell. Let's dive in. Scholars like Dr. Michael Heiser say that some of these apocryphal books that I, like I just mentioned, are crucial to understanding the second temple context of scripture, and therefore, of course, the identity and purposes of Christ. But for those joining us, for those that are unfamiliar with the premise, the context, what does that mean? So, and you mentioned Dr. Heiser, in his book, Reversing Hermon, he writes, and I quote, if you were to ask a Christian today why the world is messed up, you know, why the world is the way that it is. They would say it's because of the fall. But that, and I quote Dr. Heiser writing here, that is not what a second temple Jew would have said. So when you, again, you got to go back to the second temple era. What did the Jews believe? Not only what did they believe of the Old Testament and books like Enoch, but what did they believe of their Messiah? This is where we get into some extremely important kind of a threefold answer that they had. If you asked a second temple era Jew or an intertestamental period Jew why the world is messed up, they would give you threefold answer. Not just the fall of man, although that's the second part of it. The first part of it is the fall of the watchers from Enochian literature directly uh, out of not only Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4, which is kind of where we get the platform for that in the canonical word, Mm -hmm. but also straight out of the book of Enoch. The third part of that answer, of course, is when Israel embraced idolatry um, Mm -hmm. because of the influence of the pagan nations. So you have this threefold answer. Now, understand this. They were not expecting a Messiah to only fix one part of this threefold problem. To the first century Jew, the second temple era Jew or the intertestamental period culture, they were expecting a Messiah that would fix all three of those things. Now, as I said last week, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 had a supernatural understanding, a supernatural rendering. They understood that to be the account of the fallen angels as described in Enoch until the fourth century. Mm -hmm. It was not until very recent history, the fourth century, that it was even questioned whether or not this Enochian literature Mm -hmm. would help to define what we read in Genesis 6, 4. And prior to that, of course, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is written from what scholars completely understand. Worldwide, they understand it to be a Mesopotamian context. In other words, Genesis was written as a refutation of the Mesopotamian legends of the seven wise sages called the Apollo, who are, of course, around before the flood. So everything that we read about Genesis is understood through that worldview. Mm -hmm. Jesus's role in the New Testament, the verses that are describing where he goes and what he does is also completely defined by the Enochian literature. Mm. Just to give you a couple of examples, a demon in the New Testament to a second temple era Jew, a demon 
this is right out of Mike Heiser's book, Reversing Hermon, that the Second Temple Jew believed demons were the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim who were defeated in the Old Testament flood. So every time we read demon in New Testament literature, we understand that is the disembodied spirit of the offspring of the watchers mm -hmm. who descended on Mount Hermon. Now, in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we get to this moment where Jesus says, who do you say I am? Who do they say I am? Mm -hmm. And they have this exchange. And then Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church mm -hmm. and the gates of hell will not prevail against mm -hmm. it. Right? Yeah. Okay. Funny enough, scholars have been going round and around and around and around trying to figure out if the rock is Peter, because Peter mm -hmm. also translates to the mm -hmm. word stone and this and that and all these different things. No. Jesus is saying upon this rock, they're literally standing on a rock called Mount Hermon they're in the, the area of, this of 9, Bashan. 000, exactly. This 9,200 foot mountain that we're right standing in front of. Right by the gate to hell. Yeah, the Grotto of Pan, this big cave right over here that's the source of the Jordan River. But according to the first century uh, Jewish historian Josephus, they'd never been able to lower a plumb line deep enough to hit bottom. They believed it was literally a bottomless cave, the entrance to the netherworld. Exactly. So when you go there and you, and you understand this is where Jesus said this, you know, on this rock, I'll build my ecclesia, my congregation, and the <laughs> gates of hell, which is this big cave right over here, will not prevail against it. The apostles, disciples would have known exactly what mm -hmm. he was saying. Right. In right. fact, when we've exactly. had the opportunity to do that, you just want to hear like 100 people go, <gasps> all at once. You <laughs> show them, every time we go this right Israel. here, these are the gates of hell. Yeah, well, and don't forget that the area of Bashan at the foot of Mount Hermon was literally an Old Testament times called the gates of hell. Exactly. Yep. And the area was <laughs> the Upon place of the serpent. Upon this rock, Mount Hermon, I will build yes. my church and yes. the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We do not understand what's going on with Jesus until we understand the Enochian worldview. Exactly. exactly. Wow. Yes, absolutely. I'll also say the Mount of Transfiguration from Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. The Mount of Transfiguration, you get this beautiful moment where there is clearly a ground being claimed here. Mm -hmm. This whole uh, thing, well, scholars believed that that was Mount Tabor, but it, mm -hmm. again, was not interpreted to be Mount Tabor until the 4th century. Prior to that, it was well known that the Mount of Transfiguration was a reclaiming of the ground where? Mount Hermon, the area of Bashan, where the watchers descended in the book of Enoch and decided that they were going to thwart humanity. So over and over and over again, this is Jesus reversing Hermon. That's exactly, exactly. what Mike Heiser's book is about. One more, the exorcism of Legion in Mark 5, the demons recognized then and there yeah. when Jesus cast out Legion that he was the Lord over this region. Where did that yeah. happen? Again, the foot of Mount Hermon yes. in the area of Bashan, yes. right at the foot of where the original watchers descended. Yes. And Donna, uh, part of the reason why uh, between me and Mike Heiser, we came up with that title, Reversing Hermon, is because even the transfiguration that you mentioned, mm -hmm. what you see is this is where the angels came down. They, they set aside their glory. They cast off what they were in heaven and they took themselves into bodies like this to come down onto Mount Hermon. Jesus literally reverses this. He goes up there in a body of flesh and he's transfigured and he becomes glorified. So once you understand the Enochian, the worldview based on the book of Enoch, line by line, you can follow Jesus like, he's doing it again. I know. He is literally just in their <laughs> face with his repudiation and the disciples are loving it, right? Right. I love it too because by transfiguring on that mountain, he's showing up 
in the assembly of yes. El, mm -hmm. who was the chief of the local gods. And that threshing floor is where El supposedly will call his demonic horde mm -hmm. back to body form. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to resurrect all of you demons and give you bodies again. That's a lie. And Jesus shows up in his territory. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> it, the best way to think about Mount Hermon is it is essentially the Canaanite Mount Olympus. Yes. It is where the gods of the Canaanites met. And so this would just be an archaeological curiosity if Jesus hadn't paid so much attention to it. There's a temple on the top of Mount Hermon and a sort of a threshing floor shaped wall that forces you to go anti-clockwise, that's all part of that historic monument to El. And Jesus showed up there. Wow. <laughs> and that was the whole point of my book, The Second Coming of Saturn. And mm. El was the god that the Romans called Saturn, but he was known as Shemiyaza back in the days of mm -hmm. Jared when they descended on Mount Hermon. And in the end times, he will be known as the destroyer, Abaddon, Apollyon. Yeah. Now, Derek, in the Defender Family Bible, of course, as I said at the onset of the program, here I am lifting it again, the book of Enoch. And that's a very fascinating book. A lot of people have lots of questions about what it is. And for those that have never read the book of Enoch, I encourage you to do it. We have moved, I can't tell you how many thousands of just oh, yeah. the book of Enoch yeah. by itself in hard print, that Defender version yeah. of Enoch that you've yeah. put out. And if you missed last week, Tom gave a really good explanation about how if you go online and you try to go to the public domain, mm -hmm. the versions that you may discover could be edited yeah. Or as my daughter would Corrupted. say, remixed. Yeah. Or, yeah. Basically, let's just play jazz. Let's rearrange. I, I, this is my mm. version of the Book of Enoch. But if you want the, the truest, most authentic versions, you have to look to academia. Yeah, Joe, that's absolutely true. And this is why we, we paid so much attention to detail when we put the first version of this Bible together, however many years ago it's been. Uh -huh. And I did work with Dr. Heiser, and I wound up using the book of Enoch that he recommended. Mm -hmm. And the other books, uh, uh, J.R. Church, Gary Stearman, that's the versions that they thought were the most trustworthy and the best translated. And so I stuck with these collegiate level versions of those books. I didn't want to trust getting something off the internet right. because I might get surprised later on when someone says, hey man, your Bible is all messed up. Right. Right? So, right. On the book of Enoch, last week we talked about the two sections of Enoch, one of which was called the book of parables. Uh, when was this book written, and why is this particular section of Enoch so important? Well, actually, what we call the Book of Enoch is actually First Enoch. There's a Second Enoch and a Third Enoch that were written into the Christian yeah. era, so they're interesting for academics, but not really relevant mm. to Christians. The Book of First Enoch actually has five sections, but the two that are most important to us, Donna was talking about the Book of Watchers, which is chapters 1 through 36. The second section in the book chapters 37 through 71 is called the book of parables. And this was actually the last section of First Enoch. It was written in the first century BC. And this is really new research. We're talking about stuff that's only been discussed by a, a group of scholars who call themselves the Enoch Seminar that focus on the book of Enoch within the last 10 years. And some of this research is only like published last August. So this is really new stuff. Um, they conclude that this book was written and finished just about the time of the death of Herod the Great, which means just before the birth of John the Baptist mm -hmm. and the birth of mm -hmm. Jesus of Nazareth. So this was the last section. This really is the last stuff in the expanded Apocrypha to be written before Jesus arrived on the scene. 
How important is this son of man that you hear about in the book of parables? And that's really the reason that the book of parables is so important. The first 36 chapters deals with the sin of the watchers. And that's why Donna was so correct in saying, uh, as Mike Heiser pointed out in reversing Hermann, that Jews of that period of history, first century AD, would have said, yeah, the world's in a mess because of the sin of these rebellious Elohim who came down and commingled their seed with the seed of humanity and taught us all these things we weren't supposed to know, like sorcery and witchcraft and how to make weapons of war. Beginning with chapter 37, the book of parables is strictly prophetic, and it prophesies the coming of an agent of justice, God's divine agent of justice, who is called by a number of names, the anointed one, the chosen one, and the son of man. Mm -hmm. Now, we see Jesus use that title of himself in the New Testament. It's used like 82 times in the New Testament, and most of the time, like about 76 times, it's Jesus speaking that term of himself. In fact, that's one of the things he asked his disciples at the foot of Mount Hermon at Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say the son of man is? which suggests that they were familiar with that Mm -hmm. term, that title, and the fact that he was this divine agent of retribution, God's justice. Most Bible teachers will say, well, this comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision of the throne room of God, and he sees the Ancient of Days, and next to him is one like a son of man. One like a son of man, which is a Hebrew idiom that means a human. you got the Ancient of Days there, can't really make him out, but next to him is one looks like a human. Mm-hmm. And he receives an everlasting kingdom. Dominion will never be taken away. But he doesn't do anything in the book of Daniel. But in the book of First Enoch, the book of parables, chapters 37 to 71, he's the one who comes and condemns the sinful angels, Azazel and his minions. He punishes wicked kings, evil landlords, and those who have rebelled against the authority of God. In the book of parables, for the first time in any Jewish writing in history, you see the Son of Man as playing an active role as the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus arrives 30 years after this book was written and applies that title to himself, Mm -hmm. validating the book of First Enoch. And the writers of these parables were a branch of the Essenes who lived in the very region that we're talking about, Bashan. They live right there, which is sort of like a cliff. And there are lots and lots of caves in it when you look up there. It's across from Magdala, really close to where the apostles were called. Jesus did most of his ministry in Bashan in the region of Mount Hermon. Mm -hmm. And he was aware of all of these writings that the Essenes have written, and John the Baptist may well have studied with these Essenes. This is uh, something that we weren't aware of until just very recently. Uh, And again, this is all very new research by these Mm. Anakian scholars who concluded that, yes, the Book of Parables, this most recent section of the Book of First Enoch, was probably written near the Sea of Galilee, this, this village of caves a bunch of hermits living in caves, 200 <laughs> feet off. They had to use rope ladders, literally, to get in wow. and out of their right. cave yes. homes. But right. they could look down and they could see Capernaum, where Jesus based his ministry. They could see Bethsaida, which is where the first three disciples lived, who were called Andrew, Peter, and Philip. Mm-hmm. And in the northern horizon, you could see Mount Hermon. They lived in the north. That's where Jesus based his ministry. And we argue that that is also the same region where Jesus was baptized. So Mm -hmm. Jesus was baptized there, based his ministry there, declared his divinity there. Wow. (laughs) All in the north. And it was a group of Essenes. Again, not until recently did we realize there was a split in the Essene Mm -hmm. community. 
that uh, took place around the year 100 B.C., where the group that were followers of the teacher of righteousness, those who really believed they needed to separate from the world, they went south to Qumran, the Dead Sea. And that's why most people associate the Essenes with Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. These, the, the group living at uh, the, the Arvel Cave village near the city of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from, they were a little more moderate. Yes, they still had their purity laws. It was all men in the community, but they didn't object to guys getting married and you know, they would have jobs among the community. They were a little more moderate in their beliefs, but they are the ones who produced this document called the Book of Parables that foresaw the coming of the Son of Man, and very, very soon. Right. Well, I'm going to ask in just a minute, too, what all of this did, in your view, to influence the writings of the New Testament. But before we get into that, we want to make sure that you know how you can get your copy of this incredible one-of-a-kind Bible with expanded apocrypha in the Last Chance Defender Bible Package. Right now, while supplies last, we're offering this giant limited edition Defender Family Bible for your donation of only $35 plus shipping and handling. But if that wasn't enough, we're also including the Defender Publishing's 120 ebook collection absolutely free. Now this data DVD library collection includes 120 of Defender's all-time best-selling books featuring authors like Dr. Thomas Horn, Derek Gilbert, Carl Gallup's <laughs> Lieutenant, Colonel Robert McGinnis, Sharon Gilbert, Allie Henson, Donna Howell, Terry James, the late, great Michael Heiser, and so many more, too many to number. This DVD library also includes the limited edition Defender Bible with expanded apocrypha, and all of these books in this collection come in popular ebook formats so you can read them on EPUB, PDF, Kindle, and other handheld electronic devices. It's devices of your choosing wherever you go, including the Bible that we're talking about today. These items hold a retail value of $1,400 if you had to buy all of these ebooks separately. Yours now for your donation of only $35 plus shipping and handling, so don't delay. You can scan the QR code on your screen right now using the camera app on your phone for instant access to this special offer. You can also visit us at skywatchtvstore.com or call 1-844-750-4985 and ask for the last chance Defender Bible package right now. This would make a really, really amazing Christmas gift to you for all of the people in your life that love to do research or your pastor. So buy it now and save it and give it to them for Christmas. Oh, that's a great idea. idea. Just stash it somewhere. Yeah. You might be wondering, what is the catch? <laughs> How can I get all of that for $35 donation? Uh, and I said it in the last show, there is no catch. This is just because my father wants you to have these books. Derek, getting right back into it with just a few minutes left on the clock, how did all of what you guys were describing about the various locations, the book of parables, where it was written, what was going on at the mm -hmm. time, how did that influence the writings of the New Testament? Well, as we discussed before the break, the, the use of the term the Son of Man as a prophesied Savior comes right out of the book of parables in First Enoch. I don't argue that they were probably inspired by the book of Daniel, but they developed it further. And uh, by the time John the Baptist was 
preaching and Jesus arrived on the scene, the ground had been prepared in that area north of the Sea of Galilee where you had this Essene community living near the city of Magdala. In fact, John the Baptist, many scholars believe, was a member of the Essenes, but they will often put John's ministry down in the south near mm-hmm. Jericho, yeah. near the Dead Sea, because they assume that the Essenes were all at Qumran. That's not true. We know from Josephus and another Jewish historian in the first century, Philo of Alexandria, there, there were about 4,000 Essenes living in the land of Israel or the land of Judea. Mm-hmm. There were not 4,000 people living at Qumran. It just wasn't that big. They were all over. They were in Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout, and they had this little cave village of hermits who were writing this book in the last century before the birth of Jesus. And in there, we see for the first time in Jewish writings the idea that you could be forgiven by repenting mm-hmm. rather than by fulfilling the law. And according to the Essenes at Qumran, following all of their rules as well, which is, I think, why you have not found, or scholars have not found, any section of the book of parables among the writings at the Dead Sea Scrolls, because there are teachings in there that were not compatible with the teachings of the Essenes at Qumran. So John the Baptist arrives on the scene preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is new. This is radical. This was not something that the Essenes at Qumran would have taught. It's certainly nothing that the priests in Jerusalem would have taught as well. This was a new thing. Well, and also the fact that John the Baptist is described as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, which is taken right out of the book of Enoch. Absolutely. So you can see that both John and Jesus were both aligning themselves with what they knew. This is the worldview of these Hebrews, and this is what they are expecting from the Messiah. Exactly. And that wilderness was the valley of the shadow of death. It is where the Rephaim, the spirits, wandered because it was where they were fallen, and it was where they were created, and it's where they are going to be forever forgotten. Absolutely. And we don't have time to get into all of this, but John 1 verse 28 says that these things happened at where John was baptizing at Bethany across the Jordan. Yes. Proper translation rather would be Batania across the Jordan, which is Bashan across the Jordan, which is why we believe he was baptizing north of the Jordan River. John 1 that's where Jesus was baptized. And then in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus moves to Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, Matthew writes, this fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which is that same prophecy we hear every Christmas, unto us a son is born. Jesus moving to Capernaum was the fulfillment of the prophecy. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. The people dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them a light has dawned because that area going back millennia, was known as the literal entrance to the netherworld. It was a giant necropolis devoted to the cult of the dead. That's where Jesus was baptized. That's where he declared his divinity. That's where he, (laughs) not just to his disciples, was transfigured, which is shooting a flare into the spirit realm. And uh, that was where he began his march to Jerusalem to complete his mission. The ground was prepared for his ministry north Mm -hmm. in Bashan. And a lot of it comes right out of the Book of Parables, chapters 37 to 71 in First Enoch. Well, thank and you, another Jesus. thing to note is that Book of Parables written maybe 30 years or so before Jesus mm-hmm. appeared, but scholars believe the first parts of the Book of Enoch were written when Adam was still alive. Wow. So, wow. yeah. If you want to get your copy of the Defender Family Bible, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, this is not hyperbole. I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you, I have experience with this type of thing. I'm telling you. <laughs> I can't say it enough. If you care about having a copy of this, Do not wait. There is a limited supply. 
My heart will be shattered if I hear later that you really desperately wanted one and did not get a chance mm -hmm. to get one. Uh, when they're gone, they're gone. And because of the demands for raw materials, the cost of books and so forth, mm -hmm. this, I believe, really truly is the last time you will see copies of this. And then they will ascend into collector vaults and things like that. So please, again, do not wait. Ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, we're all out of time. For everybody here in studio, for everybody here on panel, I'm Joe Artis Horn. Keep your eyes on the prize, which is Jesus Christ. We're going to be back next week. <laughs>